I'm Dr. William Lynn Weaver, uh, retired professor and chair of surgery, uh, and happy to be a guest on Race, Violence, and Medicine. Welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian H. Williams. We are now in season two of the show, and I'm sitting here in the back of an Uber with the iconic Dr. Lynn Weaver. Now, whether you are in medicine or not, he has an inspirational story that we are going to hear on our way to the Austin airport. We have just finished a plenary session at a major trauma meeting, and the whole focus was on diversity and equity and quality within the field of trauma surgery. And he shared a story that was inspirational and also somewhat sad that some of this, the same issues he's faced many decades ago are still present in medicine today. So Dr. Weaver, thanks for joining us here on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Brian. It's a this will make the ride a lot easier. <laughs> All right. Well, just why don't you just first give, give some background for our listeners who uh, may not know your story. Okay. Well, I'm William Lynn Weaver, uh, originally a native of Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, and uh, just recently retired uh, from surgery. I was chief of surgery at the uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina VA Hospital, my last working job. Uh, but I've been retired for about a month now and still trying to find my uh, retirement wings. Before that, I was in uh, academic surgery. I spent my life in academic surgery. Um, made it to the rank of uh, chair of Morehouse School of Medicine, Department of Surgery. Uh, also served a stint as the uh, dean of campus for Ross Medical School. Uh, and also senior associate dean for Ross. And, uh, and we had a pretty full surgical life. I'm most probably proud of the residents I've trained and the medical students who I've had some influence on. Now, where is Ross Medical School located? Ross Medical School is, is an offshore medical school located in the Caribbean island of Dominica, not Dominican Republic, but Dominica. And Morehouse School of Medicine is obviously part of the iconic HPCU Morehouse in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, yeah. Well, the name Morehouse is the same, but it's a different institution from Morehouse College. Morehouse College is all male. The Morehouse School of Medicine is both male and female. All right. So we managed to get you out here to participate in this plenary today. Um, what? I mean, you're retired. You don't have to travel. What motivated you to come out here and, and share your story? Uh, I think what I'm going to do in my retirement is to uh, not only share my story, but to try to help other young people, uh, especially high school, college, medical students, and even uh, people who are in the practice of medicine uh, deal with the issues of of isms, the issues of classism, racism, sexism, and elitism that is uh, very pervasive in our in our society at this time. 
So, so you were at Morehouse School of Medicine, that's uh, HBCU, and the experience going to medical school there would, was different than mine, where I went to a school that was, you know, with only a handful of black students across all four classes. So how do you translate what you're trying to do based on your professional experience to a wider audience of folks that are entering medicine now? Because most minorities will not have the option of going to, you know, Morehouse or Meharry or Howard. Right. I, I don't, I, I think that the important thing that you have to remember is who you are uh, when you go to those institutions and not get um, kind of blindsided by thinking that everything is okay. Uh, we're still not living in a, in a playing field. We had many examples of that in our discussion today at the meeting of uh, bias, both implied and implicit bias and uh, discrimination both uh, subtle and overt. Uh, so what happens, at least for the students that I've mentored at different institutions, especially majority institutions, is that uh, they feel that they're, they're going along and everything is all right. Then they get blindsided by a uh, very either racist or biased act. I think when that happens, we need to be in the, in the position to provide some support. Uh, it may only just be psychological support or some verbal support, but some type of support and to help them with coping mechanisms uh, to deal with those situations. Situations I dealt with all my life, but I, I didn't think, though at this late age, I'm almost 70, that I would still see it happening. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'm tired of the first you know, the first black to do this, the first, but you know, that's, we should have been past that some time ago, but uh, we haven't. And I don't know, uh, I, I definitely won't see the end of it in my lifetime, and uh, but hopefully by my grandchildren there'll be some change. So some of the stories you shared, I mean, I can tell almost the exact same stories, and then the students that I mentor nowadays are telling the same stories. It seems like nothing has changed. So why do you think that is, and what can we do? Like, you're an African-American male, I'm an African-American male, so what can we do to, to move the needle? And what can we do to get other allies involved in changing um, what seems to be continued, persistent inequities when it comes to race and medicine? Well. It all comes down to a numbers game. Uh, I, I think we have to have other individuals involved. We got have to have the people who in power uh, to to want to make a change, to want to make a difference. Um, as I said in the speech, uh, power uh, concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. So we have people in power. And that can be as, as little power as the uh, the clerk in the deli market or the policeman or the chair of a department of, of medicine or surgery. And they don't want to give up that power. They don't want to give it up. And they want to keep the status quo. Some want to keep it for just to preserve it so that 
their kids or like kids will follow in their footsteps and make sure they don't make any room for anybody else. So, but we have to en en enlist them. My hope is that as more and more younger people enter the workforce, uh, vote, that these old guys, and uh, I, I used to say it's all the old white men, but but I think there's some women in there too who want to keep the status quo. And hopefully they'll die out. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Lynn Weaver, an iconic uh, example of black male excellence in medicine. We are in an Uber on our way to the airport. But we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be back in a moment, so stick with us. Welcome back to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Our guest is Dr. Lynn Weaver. And Dr. Weaver, before the break, you were talking about, you mentioned this quote, power can see nothing without a demand. It never has, it never will. And you were speaking about power structures within medicine, medical education, and how there is a reticence to change those structures to allow more equity when it comes to racial diversity within medicine. Do you feel that that's always intentional? Or there's some people that are part of that that just don't get it? Well, I think it's both. I think that uh, number one is set up as intentional. But then there are people who are a part of it and who never even thought about it. So they don't think uh, in terms of, of any type of bias or, or racism or sexism. Um, and so they, they're, but it's also used, I've seen it used as a cop-out. It's always, I mean, they say, well, I didn't know, or I didn't realize. Well, you, you know that you didn't realize because you didn't look for it, or you weren't paying attention because it's all around you. I mean, um, there's not a person of color in this world, in this U.S., I don't know about the world, but in the U.S., who would not uh, give you an example of discriminatory actions against them at some point in time in their life. Uh, and what we're finding out with the Me Too movement is that you know, women have been subjected to uh, harassment, discrimination, low pay, uh, just like any other minority group. Uh, but now we're starting to talk about it. So for people to say that they weren't aware of it uh, is a naivete that I think is uh, contrived. So how do you engage those people in a, you know, a constructive conversation that really leads to change in this area? Very, very difficult to, to do that. Um, I, I'm still working on a way on how to bridge those topics and those subjects. It's almost like, you know, they tell you don't talk about religion or politics uh, at the dinner table. Uh, but I, I think if 
number one, you have to develop a relationship with someone. And once you develop that relationship, then you can talk freely and honestly about things. Um, I've, I've got a good friend who is uh, Jewish. And uh, I, I was never raised around uh, any Jewish people. I was raised in a segregated neighborhood uh, in Tennessee. And um, doing my, uh, I was done in my medical school. I went to medical school at Meharry Medical College, uh, which was predominantly uh, African-American. This is HBCU, although we had about 20% of my class was white. Uh, I did my residency in the military, and the only Jewish person uh, that I met during my residency was one of the um, professors it was a chief of urology and um, the only reason why I knew he was Jewish is because somebody told me he was Jewish <laughs> I mean I didn't know he, he was Jewish because he never you know uh, said anything about the Jewish holidays taking the Sabbath off any of those things he never did that because he was fitting into the United States military structure um, but he could do that because he had white skin, right? Exactly. But you can't exactly. do that. Exactly. Oh, that reminds me of, of the classic story. Uh, when I was in, in high school, um, I was um, my senior year of high school, and I was trying to get the top grade in my chemistry class, which was the teacher was overtly racist. And he would say to me, why are you in this class? Because higher education is not for Negros. And... Uh, I wanted desperately to get the highest grade in his class because whoever got the highest grade on the test would, he would ask him to stand up and acknowledge him. So I said, I'm gonna make him acknowledge me. <laughs> and I, I, kept, I kept trying to get this, and I would get a 99, this other kid would get 100. I get 100, he get 101. And, and I'm saying, wait, what's, what's going on? So one day I was uh, at the kitchen table working on something and my mother asked me what was wrong I said my, I want to get I said I want to get Mr. Hart and I said but I can't get the house this one kid keeps beating me by one point and I said but he's catching almost as much hell as I am and he's white and, and she said well, what was his name I said Stein and she said oh he's a Jew I said no he's white <laughs> she said, he's a Jew and clearly uh what I found out later was they were harassing him almost as much as they were harassing me. They were bullying him, uh, physically bullying him, but you know they didn't. They weren't bullying me physically because by that time I could take care of myself. But I finally got the highest grade in the class, and uh, and I remember Stein celebrating with me that I had the highest grade. I got a, a hundred, he got ninety-nine. And he said, you got it, you got it. Uh, but that was my first experience, realizing that Jews were discriminated against, even though I knew about World War II and, and the Holocaust, it never, I, I never knew he was a Jew. <laughs> I just knew he was white. <laughs> right, I, gotta, I, gotta, uh, I have a guest, she's gonna come on the show in a few weeks, who's gonna talk about her book. Uh, the language of hate and talks about anti-Semitic language and having re read the book it's uh, it's enlightening a lot of the parallels between black racism and anti-Semitism 
or over the centuries. So I'm, yes. I'm, I'm looking forward to that discussion. But uh, I'm looking at the Uber map here. We have about six minutes. So I want to get your, what would you tell our listener um, who is maybe t- junior or senior in college and is looking to go into medical school, uh, young, black, uh, female, or male? Um, I, w- I would say the first thing that look at what your performance has been to date and also how are you preparing yourself uh, for medical school. The most important determination to get into medical school is your MCAT. And you can't get ready for the MCAT in six weeks. You can't wait till the summer to start preparing for the MCAT. It's very clear that the better you read, the better your score is going to be on the MCAT. So if you're not reading, if all you're doing is playing video games instead of reading, well then you're you're, you're behind. Uh, and also, I, I don't want to hear, and I get tired of hearing, and saying I know I want to be a doctor, and you know I'm I'm, I'm praying to God. Well, God helps those who helps themselves. And you can pray all you want to, but if you're not in your books, you won't make it. Uh, the hardest part of medical school is getting in. Once you get in, it's not hard. It's just long. <laughs> it's just long. So you got to, the big hurdle is get in. And to get in, you've got to do well on that MCAT, but you can't show up with no C's and D's. Sage advice from an icon in medicine, Dr. Lynn Weaver. Make sure you get in them books. The hardest part about medical school is getting in. Once you get in, it's not it's not hard. It's just long. It's just it's long. Well, Dr. Weaver, thank you very much for this impromptu interview and appearing on Race, Violence, and Medicine. And I want to thank you for listening. Remember, you can catch the show anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also go to racebiolencemedicine.com and also just go to brianwilliamsmd.com and there you can sign up for the newsletter and I will bring the shows to you. Once again, I'm Dr. Brian H. Williams. This is Race, Violence, and Medicine. Thank you for tuning in.